You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. As people come back from what seems to be a a month-long holiday, we're finding ourselves with all sorts of new information, including some research that suggests uh, all meetings are a waste of time. So I think today, Martin, we will explore that, we'll interrogate that statement, and I know we've also got a very special guest uh, internationally today. Well, certainly the idea that all meetings might be a waste of time is connecting with a lot of the the things that people have in the sector, Carl. I mean, the the, the work of academics is that they're so passionate about what they do and that their community of scholars are involved in in their own institution and beyond. But the idea of being pulled into meetings by the, the wider university to serve a, a corporate mission never resonated well with, um, with the academic workforce. And um, I think, as you say, returning from extended periods of, of interruption in work practices over the longer term and certainly over the last month, it's going to be calling the value of those sort of interactions really into question of, of, of whether they're things that people want to participate in. I think we'll get into that in detail in a minute, but just, just generally, because we've had this realignment and reassessment of work-life balance you know, into what people are calling hybrid working or um, work-from-home arrangements and agreements, there's, there's a lot of people looking for reasons and excuses to suggest that coming into the office isn't uh, useful and valuable. There's a very big study that I looked at the other day that had 1,600 people in an A-B test. They, half of them, they said, you can, you're coming in every day, and the other half, you're coming in three days a week. And the results of that were uh, attrition was significantly less, 35% less for the people that were working in a hybrid fashion from home, and engagement was another 15% higher so there is a very strong conversation and, and argument to be made for hybrid working when it's done properly. But I think that's now extending into some thinking around um, business as usual in that we don't need meetings anymore or we need to do things differently. I think you definitely need to do things differently. Everyone that we're working with from terms of a client is trying to do things differently. And we're well overdue to have a good look at meetings, purpose of meetings, structure of meetings, time meetings and the way that they're run. So... I think that research, whether I entirely agree with it or not, who knows, but I think they are scratching the surface of something very important. Well, you talked about hybrid working there. I mean, in universities, we've got hybrid working to to think about in terms of the academic workforce and the professional staff that, that support them. We've also got hybrid learning as the model that's emerging for how students and staff will interact. And I, I, I can't help thinking that after such a long period of time when, when we had to work at home, work from home, we've probably entered into and are maybe coming out of a period of I think of it as like a euphoric period of thank goodness we can get back to the office isn't it great to reconnect isn't it fantastic to get away from all of the pressures that we've had at home that have got in the way of us doing things isn't it great to get out of some zoom meetings after all this while but whether that euphoria will be enduring, I mean, the, the metaphor for, for that that I see is um, the vibrant campuses that every university has been celebrating its found at the start of this academic year. Well, here we are coming towards the, towards the end of the first semester. That, that's notoriously a hard time to keep sticky campuses and students engaged on campus. 
I'm going to be really intrigued to see whether we do keep sticky campuses and vibrant campuses as the enduring model for the future in this hybrid learning scenario. Because indeed, some, some research alongside that that you've described out of the UK has suggested that that um, whether our, our students are coming back to campus and staying is an open question that we need to keep our eye on. The other thing that is becoming very obvious is the need for um, effort, for leaders to put effort into understanding preferences for their people. There's, you know, there's statutory and government guidelines around what constitutes healthy hybrid working, but there's also a, a responsibility for mental health and there's a moral code of conduct here that leaders need to respect to understand their decisions are going to have an impact not just on the productivity of the organization, but also on the, the individual themselves. So uh, we had sort of had a sheep dip approach for so long that here's what everyone's doing. And I think there's, there's a combination required here where, yes, we know that when people are coming in, you actually want other people in there. The vibrancy and the collaboration is really important. So we need to have some sort of stipulation or mandate around the days that people come in. We all come in. But we can't be doing that to, to an extent that compromises people's mental health. And if we do, we're going to find very quickly that we're going to only exacerbate the war on talent. Well, I think that's um, obviously a hugely important issue in, in corporate life, in working life generally. And I think it is a very relevant issue in, in, in the working life of universities and their staff and their students too. And it's a beautiful segue really to some of the issues that we uncovered in our interview this week with with Malcolm Press, a, a vice chancellor from the UK, where, where I think these themes of, of empathy and understanding in building teamwork amongst teams of staff and students and the extent to which that's based on the concept of, of trust really came to the fore. And we'll hear from Malcolm just after this short message. While the global pandemic has forced the education sector to shift online, OES have been delivering high quality online education services for over a decade. Having built thousands of online units and supported over 50,000 students, OES partners with universities across areas including learning design, learning analytics, simulations, student support, and more. Discover how OES can help support your institution's digital strategy. Visit oes.edu.au. Our guest today on HEDEX is Professor Malcolm Press, CBE, who leads Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK, having previously worked at the universities of Birmingham, Sheffield, Manchester and University College London. Malcolm serves on the board of Universities UK and is a trustee of both the British Council and of the Universities and Colleges Admissions Service. Malcolm, welcome to HEDEX. Thank you very much, Martin. It's great, great that you can join us and um, I'll get straight into it with a, a, a question maybe at the heart of some of the things that you're dealing with at the moment. I don't know what the biggest priorities are for you and Manchester Met as we traverse some of what well, I think many people would see as the most difficult and challenging times in the way that higher education has developed over recent decades. And maybe you might illustrate um, what, what's concerning you by telling us what, if anything's keeping you awake at night at the moment. Well, I usually have a jokey answer to that, which is the dog jumping on the bed, but I'll give you, I'll give you a much more serious response. So I think first and foremost, let's remember what we're here to do. Every university around the world is here to do two things. We're here to give our students a brilliant experience that leads them into life enriching opportunities. And we're here to do research, which is impactful, uh, benefits individuals, communities, the economy and society. So 
in a way, it's easy to get to sleep because we've got such an important mission to deliver, haven't we? So that really matters. The, you know, the more reflective response would be that, to me, what matters most is the calibre and the quality of the people around me, my senior team and the people who work in the university. And I get to sleep at night, actually, because of the quality of the people that I've got supporting me. And the team really makes a great difference. So I don't have to lie awake worrying about a million and one things because I've got a great group of people, all of whom are connected, work together, support one another. And I think that's what defines um, a strong university, actually. Well, that's a very nice way of looking at um, the challenge of leadership and the benefits of teamwork. Thanks for that. And you've spent your career working in, in some of the UK's leading universities, but I'm sure you must have some awareness of how universities in other parts of the world are either different from or similar to how the UK universities operate and, and how they're developing. What would you say, given our current circumstances, what would you say are any advantages that UK universities have right now compared with universities in other parts of the world? Well, of course, I'm much more familiar with the UK sector. Well, I have uh, travelled extensively, so I, I have some knowledge of institutions elsewhere. At the moment in the UK, one of the most exciting things is the huge demand for higher education. Uh, we've seen year-on-year -year growth due to a rising number of 18-year-olds and also actually a widening of participation. So there is big demand from um, learners for what we have to offer. On top of that, as you'll appreciate, Martin, something like one in four students who travel overseas for education come to the UK. So we're a major source. Uh, we're a major destination for international students, as indeed uh, is Australia and, and the US. Um, and we compete, actually, don't we, for the international student market. But we see ourselves, I think, as offering a, a really excellent education, clearly taught in English, clearly giving students an opportunity to live in an English, native English-speaking country as well. So um, when you think about that, coupled with the changes that we've had in visa regulations that allow students to work following their degree, I think the UK is a pretty compelling offer at the moment, actually. Okay, that's, I'm, I'm interested to hear that from you, because maybe the perception in some parts of the world is that the UK has been doing it tough recently. I mean, the impact of the pandemic has been global. Um, the phenomena of Brexit is a pretty local one, although it has different implications on other people. And what I read and hear about the different policy initiatives and changes that are being played out in the UK is that there must be some impact of all of that on the finances of yours and every UK university right now. Are you able to give me and our listeners an, in, an insight into the, the current Manchester Met financial position and what responses you're having to make to that with regard to staffing, to workloads and the way that you're operating? Are times tough? Well, it's a, it's a really good question, Martin, but just let me take a step back from that and think about what we do. And I, I, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, and I think it's really important that we view this through a, an asset-based prism. Let's think about it. I've been in higher education for, what, more than three decades? Um, throughout those entire three decades, everybody's always been talking about how difficult it is, how challenging it is, how tough it is, what, you know, what we need to do differently and better. So it's, all, it's always been like that. Right, that's the first thing. The second thing is we're all about, or mostly about young people, aren't we, who are looking forward with optimism and positivity to their lives. So if we can't be, I think, positive about what we can do for them, to support them, enable them to succeed, I think we're letting them down. So yes, of course it's challenging, of course it's difficult. 
always has been. I'm sure it always will be. But the key to success, I think, is to be focused around what you want to do, to put quality at the heart of everything that you do, to work with your people, so that's a team effort, and to constantly drive efficiency and effectiveness. So you asked me about some of the particular challenges that we face in the pandemic. Yes, of course, COVID's had a direct impact on our um, balance sheet and also direct impact of having to defer some things. But this universe has always been well managed. The finances are robust. We have choices. And the key thing for us to succeed is to make the right choices, make sensible choices that put students at the heart of what we do and to ensure we only do research where we're very good at it. So by having that focus, that quality, moving at pace, thinking about how we can be efficient and effective, I actually feel positive and confident about the future. And I think if you, if you would say to me, Martin, well, you know, on what evidence do you base that? Ultimately, universities only succeed if they can attract students. Our applications this year from UK students are 17% up. That's against an average of 2% across the sector. Our international student numbers have more than doubled, albeit from a low base over the last three years, and they're looking very buoyant too. And the second indicator is, can you attract strong staff? And yeah, we met through a mutual colleague, and I'm very excited about the caliber of the people that we can attract. So um, whilst we're on a journey, of course, every university is on a journey. You know, I feel positive about the future. It's um, really interesting to hear you talk about, and it comes through so strongly in the conversation we've had in this interview so far, your focus on people, both your staff and your students. And you've told us a lot of data about your students and their growing numbers. I'm, I'm sure one of your greatest concerns must be the welfare of your students at the moment. We're, we're all commenting around the world, aren't we, on the concern we all have for student mental health. And there's been recent data in both the UK, but also many other parts into student exposure to sexual harassment and assault on our campuses. I, I wonder if these are, or, or other things, are your biggest concerns for your students right now and what you're doing about some of those things. Well, I think you're absolutely right about what you say uh, with regard to mental wellbeing and mental health. And I think that's for two reasons. First of all, there's more reporting than there was in the past. But secondly, I think the challenge is on the mental well-being of young people are, are, are significant, much more significant than perhaps they were previously. The first point I would make is that we need to compare the student body with a similar cohort who don't go to university. And if you look at the data, at least in the UK, in general, the mental well-being of students, whilst challenging, is better than those who don't go to university in all indices bar anxiety. So it's important to understand what the challenges are. The response that we've taken here in Greater Manchester is actually to work together across the five Greater Manchester universities and with our local um, public health body. And by working with the, the National Health Service and across the universities, we've set up a, uh, a mental support facility where all our students can get um, care as they need it through referral from the institutions. And we think that our students have the best mental care that any young person in the country would possibly get outside of the private system. And the issues of exposure to sexual harassment and assault on our campuses, is that something that you um, are focused on at Manchester Met in a national system and are making specific responses to? Well, we I think we do have a, a responsibility to our students to make sure that the environment is safe uh, and that they can live and study uh, without fear uh, of anything, actually. And so, again, of course, tragically, there are incidents of sexual assault, uh, as we all know. 
But to be quite honest with you, um, this is not a problem that we've experienced significantly here at Manchester Metropolitan. We're aware of it. We have good support systems in place to deal with it, but it's not something that uh, crosses my desk with any degree of frequency. I can't say much more than that. I can't, I can't talk about other universities in detail, I'm afraid. No, okay. One of the things that we've been focused on in Australian universities recently beyond the sexual harassment and assault issues that's all Australian campuses um, have been exposed to is, is are the issues of gender equity and diversity and inclusion more broadly. Is that a high priority for you in your work at Manchester Met? It, it most definitely is. And, and it's important for two reasons. The first is um, it's the right thing to do, reasons of equity and social justice. And the second thing is that if we want the best for our students and the best for our staff, we have to make sure that we draw that talent in whatever shape or form it exists. Um, and you know, and I'm, you know, I'm an openly gay man myself, so I've experienced prejudice. Uh, I know what it's like to be uh, in a situation where you don't feel like you fit in. And this is a community where uh, inclusivity is the heart of what we do. It matters to everybody. We have a senior member of my team who's responsible for it. And I think whilst we've got a job of work to do, we have made some significant strides. Let, let me give you an example. So. One of our departments, accounting, finance and banking, is about two thirds black, Asian and minority ethnic students. Uh, and if you wind the clock back three or four years, we had an attainment gap between our BAME students and our, and our white students of about 13%. We've closed that attainment gap, or at least narrowed it to 3%. So it's not disappeared yet, but we have worked out some positive steps that we can take to ensure that all our students have an equal opportunity to succeed. That's great. I and mean, it's great to hear you so on top of all of that data and so committed to some of those issues personally. And um, I wonder if I might just move us into a slightly different territory. I mean, I know Manchester Met to be a great civic university. And Metropolitan, after all, is what Met's short for and is in your title. I wonder what the differences are that are being faced by a university like yours right now in that civic setting compared perhaps with the many campus-based or regional universities in the UK and as we find them in other parts of the world. Is it easier being in a city right now? Well, Manchester's a great city in which to live and work. And that was one of the main reasons why I was keen to come and leave Manchester Metropolitan because it's a fantastic um, campus-based, city campus-based institution. And as you know, we've got uh, some 38,000 students. We're banging next door to the University of Manchester, which has got few more than us, but between us, we've got about 80,000 students on a one mile stretch of, a main, of, a, of the Oxford Road, which is uh, one of the main routes into the heart of the city. So it's a fantastic environment. And that gives us many opportunities. And um, businesses are keen to be here because of the talent pipeline. And I'm sure it's the same in Australia. There's a shortage of talent, particularly in digital and creative skills. Um, so, yeah, well, there are plenty of opportunities and advantages of being in a location like this. But, you know, I think wherever you are as a university, there's a real emphasis, I think, now on working out what you can do uh, and, and, your, and your role in a place-based context. So I've got colleagues who work in smaller institutions, in rural institutions, and they make phenomenal contributions to the rural economy, for example, phenomenal contributions to, um, to, to tourism, for example, as well. Uh, and so I think, you know, it's about, it's about understanding your place and leveraging that synergy, you know, between place uh, and campus. So the two are much more powerful together. And you've referred to the, the size of Manchester Met and of, of your near neighbour compared with some of those regional or campus-based universities. 
I wonder, you, you, in, in UK terms, you are quite a large university, and I, I, I wonder what particular advantages, advantages, if any, scale is offering to you as a university leader right now. Is it good to be big at this point in time? Well, I, I think it is good to be big. Uh, it's good to be big because um, if you are large, you've got more options available to you. You can think about the diversity of your portfolio, uh, you can drive um, efficiencies that come through economy of scale. And if you look at the leadership teams, for example, of universities, I suspect there isn't a great correlation between the size of the universities measured by student uh, population and the size of the leadership team. So we can be much more efficient. You know, the downside is we're more thinly spread, but we can make sure that by having strong leadership by department, by faculty, I think we can deliver effectively. So I think scale does matter these days. Um, it allows you to do more. It gives you choices, it gives you flexibility, and it means that you can respond, I think, more quickly to an ever-changing and more heterogeneous world. You, you referred a bit earlier in our conversation, Malcolm, to the 17% um, growth in applications from domestic students at Manchester Met this year, if I, if I remember and heard that correctly. Does that mean you have the opportunity to and would like to take advantage of the chances to grow as a university from your current 38,000 students? We're, I Personally, I'm not, uh, I'm not looking to grow our undergraduate numbers. I mean, this is an opportunity for us to think about where we place our students so we can corral more around our areas of strength which means linking student demand, student quality uh, with employer demand so we can ensure it's a much tighter pipeline. Uh, and also, I think if we are going to grow, we're keen to grow some of our international numbers and our postgraduate taught numbers. So uh, I'm not looking to grow the domestic market. What I'm doing is to uh, I'm trying to focus that domestic market around areas where we think there are more opportunities. So, I mean, I'll give you a practical example. There'll be programs where we could take more students but if we don't think there are jobs for those students, then we're not going to expand in those areas. It's important that we um, have a very keen line of sight on the um, where students are going to go. And I think that, that serves them better. Yeah, that's very good to hear. And um, I sense in, in how you're describing things and, and reading about you in advance, in advance of our interview today, that, that you personally and Manchester Met has a particular com commitment to the, 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 the sense that we all have of foreshadowed growth in demand for, you've referred to postgraduate, but for lifelong learning in general. And I was intrigued by your interest in UK de degree apprenticeships in particular. Can you tell us where you think both of those fit in to manage the Met's priorities and whether you see growth in those two areas of your student cohort? Well, for, for listeners who don't know, we've been here in one form or other for the best part of 200 years. You know, we trace origins back to the Mechanics Institute in 1824 and the School of Design in 1838. And we've always been here to provide those and um, practice work-based skills that people need. And so it's part of our history to work in that way with business. And if we look back over the last year, you know, I've had uh, conversations uh, with uh, some amazing alumni. We've got alumni who are you know, the chief executive of Vodafone, Siemens UK and Ireland, Sanofi. Those are all alums of ours. We've always had people that come through this university because of our approach to business. And so when there was an opportunity to run degree apprenticeships, if people don't know what they are, it's a fantastic way of working and studying at the same time. So typically you'll spend four years gaining a degree but spending on average a day a week in the university. 
And the, the students who do that have tremendous outcomes. We've just completed a piece of research looking at some of our digital technology students. Um, they earn on average twice the salary of a computer science graduate. We've got a third participation from uh, black and minority ethnic students and also women and also more students from disadvantaged areas. So this is a great way to learn and study simultaneously, but also I think it has, um, it has, it has a, it, it's a brilliant device through which you can, I think, um, widen participation and I think uh, ensure that all those with the capabilities to succeed can do so. So we're really excited and proud about degree apprenticeships. We've got about two and a half thousand at the moment. Um, you asked about growth. We're looking to increase that number by 50% between now and the middle of the decade. I'm confident we can do that. And again, we, we work with some 500 plus employers to deliver those apprenticeships and, um, and we'll continue doing that. We do it across the, the board, actually. You know, we've got digital tech, um, health in, in, in the healthcare and health professions, in some of the creative subjects too, um, and also in business. So um, they're popular across the breadth of our four faculties. That sounds great. And, and what about the, the area of lifelong learning? You referred to more postgraduate coursework students, I think, in a, an earlier part of the conversation. Are micro-credentials and other firms, forms of lifelong learning provision outside of our conventional degree programs growing in, in importance for you at Manchester Met? Well, I think, you know, you'll, you'll know as well as I do, Martin, some universities that do very, very well with this. You know, the Open University is probably the best example, and, Bir uh, and Birkbeck University in London, and also actually the University of London with its international programmes. Um, at the moment, there's a big debate going on here in the UK about exactly how we're going to operate um, micro-credentials, stackable credentials, credit transfers, as part of the government's uh, desire to ensure that people can study and work throughout their careers. So we're certainly looking at this. We're one of 22 universities that are piloting some micro-credentials at the moment. So I would just like to see how that pilot goes and then um, reflect on the evidence and see where that takes us. I'll come back and talk to you about that at some point in the future. Oh, I'll, I'll hold you to that, Malcolm. Thank you very much for the offer. And one of the pilots that you probably didn't plan for that must have been a big learning experience for you in the last couple of years was a, a rapid pilot in online learning across your programmes. I mean, what, what did you learn from that? And how has it influenced how your commitment as a university to a hybrid way of working and more online provision is now going to be part of your future? Is, is that a real thing or are you going back to 2019 on Oxford Road? Well, like most universities, we pivoted online very quickly, not just for teaching, but also for assessment and also for student support. And it was phenomenal um, the way in which staff all worked together to deliver that. And we did our, our very best for the students and most of the students were appreciative of the efforts that we invested in that. And I'm sure that's the case across the country. We've had a big conversation internally about what sort of university we want to be. Half our students do practice or practical subjects, you know, ranging from the arts to the sciences to health. Um, we've taken the decision that we are going to be mostly a campus-based university. We're investing massively in digital, but we're using it to enrich, to enhance and to supplement on-campus, in-person, teaching, learning and student support. And that's in response, not just to our sense that it's a better way of delivering for our students, but also our students actually enjoy working and studying together. They enjoy spending time on campus. And we think that, that that form of a blend is better than saying, there's no value in a large lecture. So by the way, we'll just deliver that online. 
You asked me what we'd learned. Uh, I think we learned there's a big difference between just um, sitting in front of a, of a Mac and talking to the camera uh, compared with what a really exciting and I think inspiring lecture is. And you know, I'm here, I'm here today talking to you because some of those lectures that I went to uh, when I was an undergraduate were just so utterly compelling. And I think, you know, I can remember going to conferences who the great speakers were, and none of that comes across um, when, you're, when you're sitting at home listening to things on, on, on a computer. And you miss the opportunity to engage in the margins with your peers, with your tutors. And I think that's so important in building confidence, in enabling you to ensure you've understood correctly and I think, you know, in building those networks that we all need for the future. So um, you didn't have much chance, and no one did, to think too much about that rapid pivot in a couple of weeks in March 2020 to a fully online exposure then. I don't know if before that time or since, partnerships for a university like Manchester met with different ed tech providers in different areas of online program management or other forms of support services. Is that a blooming issue for you as you think about the partnerships that you need as a university to embrace the, the future that's staring you in the face? We do have a partnership with, a, with an online provider and we do run some global programs at master's level. Uh, and I think the challenge for us is to reflect on how best we want to do that in the future. And again, that's something that uh, once we've uh, fully fleshed out our thinking on that, I'd be happy to discuss further. You sound like you've got some really interesting pilots underway at the moment that um, are going to be um, very influential in determining what the, the future strategy and the, the shape and nature of Manchester Met will, will be. And it will be fascinating to come back to you. But um, as well as maybe broadening it out from Manchester Met's is issues, I said in the introduction that you sit on the board of the UK peak body, Universities UK. And I wonder through that and the many other networks that I'm sure as a vice chancellor of a major British university you must be part of, I wonder what, to what extent the issues you are facing at Manchester Met are those that are shared by all UK universities at this moment in time? Or, or has the last couple of years created distinct and different winners and losers in the current climate and environment than those that were emerging as winners and losers before this period? Well. I guess, like uh, most things, COVID has been quite a, um, a powerful tool in shining a light on the performance of organisations. But I think all it's done really is, is show us what was already there. And if you look across the university sector in the UK, it will be the same in Australia and the same in many other countries. You know, there are a number of axes, aren't there, that partition institutions. And I've touched on these already. How popular are you with students? Um, how good are you getting your students the sorts of outcomes that they aspire to achieve? How robust are your finances? Um, you know, how much borrowing have you got? And if you look at all those sorts of things, then institutions in the UK will be in different places. I think the challenge for us all is to work with what we have to deliver the very, very best for our students and to create a really positive working environment for staff. Well, you're certainly giving a very rich picture here, Malcolm, of someone that's very focused on making the best of Manchester Met's resources and assets and doing the very best for your students and staff. I wonder if I can then just move in the interview to a close, ask the question, I, I can't help asking this of every vice chancellor I've interviewed, and it's been 20 plus over the last year and a half or so. Are you enjoying being a vice chancellor at a leading British university in 2022? I absolutely love it. And if I didn't love it, I won't be sitting here talking to you today. 
you know, I've got plenty of things that I like to do uh, in my, with my life and in, 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 my, in my spare time. Uh, but I absolutely love my job. If I didn't love my job, uh, I wouldn't be any good at doing it. And I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today, Martin. Well, I'm delighted that you're sitting here talking to all of our audience, Malcolm. You've been you've been great fun to interview, and and a very rich picture of a very focused leadership of a very distinct institution. So, for being our guest on Headex and telling us about life in one of the Britain's greatest cities, and from the Manchester Metropolitan University, thank you very much for being our guest on Headex today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Martin. So, Martin, what do you think? Uh, well, I, look, I was really taken with Malcolm's message, his um, his character, and um, and personality that came through that. Actually, I I mean, he's someone that is very likable and has values as a person that are very easily identifiable with his his personal commitments to diversity and inclusion come through loud and loud and clear in that. But also his clarity in his institution's strategy. Um, knowing what, what, what they are committed to and what they're not going to be doing and, and an equal commitment to pursue both of those things and a willingness to, pill it, to, to really to pilot some innovative and novel approaches with an open mind on where they might go. I, I, thought, I thought there were some really striking things about his personal approach and style of leadership there. Yeah, I really liked it too. We're moving, obviously, we've said before, into a, a place or a position just generally where... The empathy is king. You know, organisations that have leaders that can can literally understand the needs of others better are going to perform better. I mean, the the other um, issues that came through in that interview that I think for for us in Australia are quite striking in terms of where the sector's up to. His comment that there's a seventeen percent increase in demand from students for courses at Manchester Metropolitan University. They're in a different cycle of the recruitment round than we are in in Australia, where our first semester is underway. They're they're now confirming their offers and their numbers for a September, August, September intake for the start of the academic year this year. And that level of increase in demand, that, that I've, I've hearing data like that coming out of the US as well at the moment of the demographic changes, meaning a greater demand for, for university study. And some of the, some of the more localised comments about how we reach peak higher education are very much challenged by those views. And then the other aspect of what was different in what Malcolm said to what so many Australian universities are, are going through in the detail was this concept of degree apprenticeships, the idea that a partnership between the university and employers of trusting each other to share the responsibility and the, and the provision of, of education for people that have a thirst for knowledge, but have a thirst for taking the first step on the career ladder as well. And we, we, we've got our job-ready graduates and our industry engagement commitments and our other ways of trying to form stronger links. But um, there's a certain novelty that seems to be resonating with the market in forming those stronger partnerships with employers and trusting each other to have a shared responsibility for the education of young people that would like to be working in that sort of environment. And, and look, on the topic of trust, uh, you know, we're in an environment now where hybrid working, work from home, whatever's going on, there's a higher degree of trust required. I think now after almost three years, employers understand that they need to be able to trust their employees and employees need to be able to trust their employers. Um, now, in Australia, I'd not, I, look, I don't have the, the insight into what goes on in higher education in this space, but in corporate world, that's very, very difficult. There's not necessarily a history, a long history or tenure of leaders demonstrating culture and 
um, behaviours of trust and creating a sense of trust and a sense of belonging effectively. Um, it's required now. We're going to see more of it because of you know, voluntary attrition being so high uh, and em- employees demanding it. But I sort of feel in the same way where we talked about meetings, that meetings aren't just meetings. Some people run meetings in a, a way that's atrocious and other meet- people run meetings that are entirely inspiring. So it's not like for like and trust is, trust is the same. We've had a history of employing leaders that aren't particularly uh, inspiring themselves and don't necessarily have a high degree of empathy and know how to deliver trust or develop trust with their people. Whereas as other leaders, and you know, we can sort of count them on one hand, that instinctively do that. I mean, for, for me personally, I've just finished writing a, a piece around not everyone can be a leader. In Australia, we've jumped into this idea that everyone can be a leader. We do leadership training and now you're a leader. Well, there's so much more to it than just your capability. You know, your entire conditioning and way of being is far, far outweighs your ability to structurally conduct a meeting or to lead people in a particular way that comes out of a framework. So I think that's it's a new frontier there for us to look into the humanities and the human science around what does lead people into a, a position to effectively be a leader and what, what are the things that we need to be able to candidly call out and say, listen, that'd be nice if that person was a leader, but unfortunately in this instance, in this stage of their life, they're not ready. Uh, v- very interesting parallels to the world of university and higher education there, Carl. I mean... You know, the leaders of our universities in Australia and around the world have traditionally been um, sourced and and decided upon and guided and rewarded and and um, and renewed on the basis of first and foremost academic credibility. Do, can they cut it with a professoriate by having been there and done it already before? Well, I think one thing that the last few years has really thrown into sharp focus. It was happening anyway is that leaders of our universities need to be people that can lead organizations, lead people, lead multiple stakeholders, can lead can lead culture. And I, for me, that was really striking about the very first answer that Malcolm gave in that interview. When I when I asked him what, what if anything, was keeping him awake at night, um, you know, once he got over the reference to the, the dog jumping on the bed with him and, and said that he didn't get kept awake at, at night because he trusted his team of great people that he'd hired that he then sought to get out of the way of to, to let move forward is in striking contrast to, you know, so many of the images we've had of leadership of being micromanaged and, and being told what to do. The, the, the comments you're making about that research of, of, of the usefulness of meetings and, and the design of good meetings is exactly that. I mean, so many meetings that we've all been part of in university where we all turn up to check up on each other and spruik what we're doing and do a little performance in front of 20 other colleagues, all of whom are not listening and waiting for their turn to have their go. You don't need that sort of meeting. You don't need that sort of control. If you've got a leader that that trusts you and inspires trust in the rest of the team, and I think we're going to see a real paradigm shift actually in the qualities that we look for in university leaders, and what leads to good leadership in our academic institutions. And I think Malcolm demonstrated a number of those com- those concepts. I feel a lot more optimistic about the higher education sector in that space than what I bump into every day in the world of corporate um, leadership. You know, I don't see necessarily the sun rising out of the horizon there. I see us continually making the poor decisions around 
the criteria to which leaders are assessed and the way in which they conduct themselves. Well, I think uh, uh, that would be a, a surprise to me and it would be a shame for the wider world if, if what we see in, in higher education is the leading um, example of this. But going back to that, that conversation we had before the interview of the parallels with hybrid working and hybrid learning, I think these concepts of trust and new ways of doing things play out with students as well. If, if we have a relation, if we have that master-apprentice relationship with, with students, which requires them to attend, requires them to turn up to be told what to do, retire, required to turn up to be controlled what to think, we're going to very quickly, I think, with, with the modern demographic and the change in expectations the last couple of years has seen, see a failure to want to show up and participate in that model of education. Students want to be trusted and they want to trust their university to be helping them learn well and learn the right things that are going to learn to future employment. And that will all come from empathy and the right models of trusted leadership from the top of our institutions and if we're at the leading edge great for us good for us i still think we've got a long way to go and that's all we have time for on this episode of headaches thanks martin thanks carl